Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, the TLS arts editor, and I'm joined by Alex Clark, friend of the podcast and now co-host of the podcast. Hello, Alex. How are you doing? Hello, Lucy. I'm doing very well. I'm I'm in my new hot seat. Yeah, exactly. I hope it's not literally a hot seat. No, it's flipping freezing, actually. (laughs) (laughs) For the beginning of so-called spring up here in the hills. It's windy and cold, and what we need to do is warm our cockles with some book chat. And we'll give you a warm welcome. How's that, Alex? For um, very good, you know, thank you. Yeah, nice segue. I was thinking about it. So you don't you don't actually work in the offices of the TLS. Not that anybody has very much for the past two years, but you know what I mean. But you've been writing for us for. Am I allowed to say? Oh, How do. long? 20 I would years? say it I'd actually say that that's nice of you but it's probably <laughs> closer to 30. Is it really? Yes I think it is the TLS was the first place I ever had a book review published. Oh wonderful and look where you are now on top of the world. <laughs> I <am> now <laughs> I have been writing away for, for you for various bits of the paper over the years, I'm I'm not obviously allowed into the the nerve centre. Um, Very welcome. To, I, you know, it's I'm not allowed into the hallowed halls, but um, you do allow me by the magic of remote podcasting to join you. Yeah, delighted. So, what have you been reading recently? That is there anything we should take note of, or you know, run towards or avoid? Do you think? Well, <laughs> well, funnily enough, I uh, of course it's you know we're coming into spring, aren't we? And huge titles coming up, and for me, mm. the festival season also. So I have all the books that I'm going to be reading in order to talk to their their writers uh, in, at spring festivals hither, thither, and yon. And so I've just read uh, the second novel uh, by the Booker Prize winner Douglas Stewart. It's his sort of sequel to, to Shaggy Bane, although it's a yeah. different set of characters, same sort of setting a little bit later 
in the in the post Thatcherite era. Uh, so I've been reading that, and I'm just about to throw myself into the new novel by Rose Tremaine. So yes, oh, I've lovely. got a, I've got a teetering stack. And actually, I'm also I've been reading an awful lot of European novels in translation, because with uh, another TLS notable Toby Lipstick, we are we are judging a prize of European literature in translation. So we've been busy honing our our skills for the EBRD prize, of which more anon, I'm sure. Yeah, we would love to hear about that. What's the most recent one you read then in translation? Uh, well, I have been reading, and I mean, you know, you, you can imagine um, that it becomes ever more sort of on point. Uh, we've been reading The Orphanage by Sergei Kashan, um, Ukrainian writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so that has had a quote, and it's set in the sort of recent Ukrainian past, which of course has come to have a tremendous additional relevance. And also, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, for those who me, I mean, who are not particularly steeped in Ukrainian society and politics and history, it has been unbelievably illuminating. So, so yes, that's one of the last books I read for that prize. We have a long list. We will soon have a short list. And perhaps we'll ask Toby to join us and chat about it at some point in the future. Yeah, that would, that would be great. Um, but before we get to that, I need to tell everyone what is coming up on this week's show. Who was Jane Austen before she was Jane Austen? Or Life Before Bonnets. We'll be joined by EJ Cleary to discuss a new edition of The Watsons and Sanditon and a collection of Austen's other unpublished writing. And another question, is Kez still ingrained in the psyche of the North? And if so, why? But first, Jane Austen was writing from when she was 11 years old, cooking up madcap plots and comic capers for her family's entertainment. So do early works such as Love and Friendship and Lady Susan show us a freer and more exuberant writer than we might expect? And if so, what happened to her? And what of the stories that Austen left unfinished? A new edition of The Watsons and Sanderton, edited by Catherine Sutherland, and Freya Johnston's Jane Austen Early and Late may shed new light on a writer we all think we know. Emma Cleary has reviewed them both and joins us now. Emma, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. I, I was really taken just diving into your, your, your piece right at the beginning. You, you basically issue a kind of warning. It starts with a really sort of cautionary tale. You say, if we go into these less well-known Austin works, we will find that they're basically unknowable and that we will lose our soulmate and our solace. And I was really struck by that idea of these two Austins, the Austin from the, the six novels that we're most familiar with and this other Austin from the early and late work. And, and, and you see them as very different writers, I took from that. Is that right? Well... I was inhabiting a certain mindset about the unpublished writers to begin with in the in the review, um, you know, partly to to grab the reader and uh, and and just sort of, I suppose, put across the idea that um, the manuscript writings have been considered to be a problem, even mm-hmm. by some of their earliest the, the earliest supporters of, of Jane Austen's work. Um, including her own family. Uh, And so these manuscript works were 
basically unknown until around 1870 to the general public. Um, and at that point, um, one of her nephews and um, two of her nieces got together to discuss what they might make public at that point. So um, the nephew, um, James Austin Lee, had written a short memoir of the life of his, his aunt. And this was really the first time that um, readers of Jane Austen got to know about her as a person. There'd just been very brief indications previously. Her work, of course, was all originally published anonymously. Um, and so there was all this behind the scenes material and they were very concerned about establishing her reputation, reinforcing it with um, a very uh, uplifting tale of a, um, uh, almost the, the, the ideal woman, you know, a perfect sort of decorous, um, pious writer um, who was extremely gifted, who never made a full step when it came to composing her literary works, um, a genius. And they were worried that these early works and the later unfinished manuscripts would um, undermine the impression that they were trying to give. And so initially, um, very little was, was included. I think maybe there was one or two short pieces from, the, um, from her juvenile writings. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then with a bit of pressure from some of the readers, um, a bit more was revealed in the second edition of the, of the memoirs. Um, but with great reluctance and quite a lot of tinkering um, to smooth over the, the rough edges. And basically it was left at that until the 20th century. Now at that point, um, R.W. Chapman, who was uh, a don at Oxford University, um, became the, uh, the new sort of professional guardian of the flame mm -hmm. and began producing scholarly editions of uh, the published novels. Um, this, he began, I think it was in the, at the 1930s, um, probably began work even earlier than that. Um, but it wasn't until 1954 that he actually got round to publishing the manuscript works. And when he did, he was really quite, um, <laughs> quite iffy about them. You know, he actually said in his preface, I'm not really sure whether it's worth making these works public. Um, so all along, for people who were trying to establish Jane Austen as one of the literary greats, as a canonical writer, um, these texts have posed a problem. So I, I think I started my review from the premise that, um, yes, these are problem works, and they are going to introduce you to a very different writer. It seems like a very old-fashioned idea. It's almost the romantic idea, isn't it, of the... Of the, 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 the there's never any revision or there's never any edits. There's no early work that works up to it. Everything just pours out perfectly formed. Mm. And then, and then, and, and then that's the work and it's a perfect tool, but sure. I mean, surely that's people don't, I don't know whether people um, thought then that that's what happened, but that's not what happened with the romantics or anyone else, of course, really hard work. And I would have thought by the 20th century, people would realize that people edited and rewrote and, 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 and changed things. Yes, uh, I mean, you would have thought, I mean, there's certainly been the study of, uh, of manuscripts from Jane Austen's period from an early stage. Um, people like Wordsworth and, and Coleridge left reams of, 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 of Shelley 
um, of uh, manuscript versions of their works. And they've been poured over by scholars for a very long time. But um, maybe that's a difference between female authored and male authored literary works. I, I think people were not so interested in the genesis of her ideas. Um, they bought into the idea that she was um, an untutored genius who um, was naturally gifted, barely had to cross anything out. This was, this was very much the gist of the really the very first biographical outline um, of her from the uh, introduction of her posthumous works, Persuasion in Northanger Abbey. Uh, by her brother Henry, um, who acted as her literary agent. I wonder if you uh, you could say a bit about these these this juvenilia, which you know, as, as I was mentioning in the in the introduction, she she wrote her for family and friends, mm -hmm. and but she must have taken it seriously to some extent because she sort of collected this all together in in leather bound notebooks, didn't she? Um, but what was she, I wonder, what was she doing in those, those works like Love and Friendship and Lady Susan that we would recognise as, as something that she followed through into her, her later work? Yes, well, I suppose, yes, we're getting into the continuity idea here. I mean, um, where do these, what are these works and where do they come from? Well, there are about 27 items, very, you, most of them very short, some only a page long or, or even less than a page, um, in these three manuscript notebooks. And yes, she clearly did feel that they were worth safeguarding. I think it's... Um, I think it's Margaret Ann Doody in her in, in the introduction, her introduction to the Juvenilia mentions that um, a contemporary of Austen's, um, Frances Burney, who was much more famous in the day, she actually made a ceremonial bonfire of her Juvenilia. So the <laughs> fact that Austen didn't um, is, is intriguing. And it's testimony to, I suppose, the, the culture of the Jane Austen family, the literary culture of this, of this family, that... Um, it, it, it's very much um, these works are a gateway into her formation um, within this very close-knit family circle, very highly literate, um, very clever, very witty, a whole family of authors, really. Mm -hmm. um, so there's 27 items, mostly they're short fictions. Um, there's a couple of very short play scripts, uh, and there's the start of a novel, Catherine or the Bower, and Love and Friendship. Um, which is a, a complete work um, in letter form. And um, then a little bit later on, you get Lady Susan, which is a, a novella probably composed in the 1790s, a little bit later than the Juvenilia, and then fair copied um, at a later stage before Jane Austen actually started her public, publishing career in, uh, in 1811. Um, so... Um, in the family circle, um, there was a tremendous amount of um, writing of different kinds, charades, riddles, comic poems. They were very into wordplay and nonsense. Um, and to some extent, the work in that, that is preserved in these manuscripts, the Juvenilia, could be seen as collaborative. Well, it is in the case of um, the history of England, um, this spoof. Uh, textbook history um, to which her sister Cassandra contributed the illustrations and there's an idea that the 
portraits of the monarchs in, uh, in this manuscript are based on family members. So there's sort of layers of meaning there that we can't quite get into. Um, and, and some of them, I mean, people have tried to decode them to some extent. But You mentioned that, that even, you know, even a couple of generations or so later, the younger members of a family, you know, the ones who sort of put themselves forward as the potentially, you know, the keepers of the claim, they missed some of those codes and those clues as well, didn't they? Yes, well, they do seem, they, they can't explain, I think, um, the leap from the Jane Austen of the um, early writings or the unfinished writings and the six perfect novels that, that were actually published um, and completed. So um, they, they were sort of baffled by it. I mean, in some cases, I think they were in on the joke, um, but there was a kind of alchemy here, it seems, in her creativity, um, which creates a sort of gulf of understanding. And I think critics then have really been puzzling over this and become more and more interested in this um, apparent gap in her processes um, and trying to figure out how how you do get from um, this rough work, the, the behind the scenes work, to her public writings. One of the things that, that, that you, you sort of mentioned that, that does seem to that does seem to be a sort of link is that she's very interested in sending up, satirising, almost pastiching, perhaps, writers that, you know, she, I don't know, she didn't think much of what she enjoyed, but she wanted to pick holes in what, the, the sentimental novels, I suppose. Absolutely, yes. And that was, that was right there in the early work, but we can, we can see that later in her work, can't we? We can, we can, absolutely. And Northanger Abbey is a, is a wonderful case in mm. point. That was the first mm. of the novels that she... Uh, nearly, well, she nearly got it published at the beginning of her career, um, and uh, and and then it actually got uh, a revised version published um, posthumously. Um, but yes, I mean, the, you, there you can absolutely see a continuity, and so there is this idea, I think, um, among the early commentators on the um, the manuscripts, like Brian Southam, that she she's engaged in a, in an apprenticeship. Um, so she's processing the fashions, the, the literary fashions of her day um, in a satirical form um, and by burlesquing them, kind of learning lessons from them and learning how to transcend them to some extent, learning what she doesn't want to do um, and, uh, and, and doing it with this in these extraordinarily clever and witty ways. Um, so a lovely example of that is Love and Friendship. And I think that would be a very good entry point for anyone who hasn't read the manuscripts. Have a, have a go with Love and Friendship. Um, so here we have um, probably the masterpiece of the teenage writings. It's this wonderful spoof on sentimental fiction in letter form. It was tremendously uh, popular in the 1770s and 80s. Um, I think Goethe's The, Sor the Sorrows of Young Werther is, uh, is, is referenced in it. Um, and what you've got throughout this is an absolutely um, hilarious clash between the high-flown rhetoric of feeling among the, the main characters and their incredibly amoral behaviour, especially when it comes to money. Um, so the main couples, there are two couples, they rebel against their parents, they go on the road, they're leeching off 
sympathetic dupes. Um, and all of this is being related through the voice of, uh, of Laura telling her tragic story, the tragic story of her youth to, um, to the daughter, someone from the next generation, the daughter of a childhood friend. She and her mates are, are they never steal money, they gracefully purloin it. Uh, with great <laughs> self-righteousness um, and the main moral of the tale seems to be um, and this is a, a one of her sterling lines from the juvenilia I mean written when she was about I think in this case 15 run mad as often as you choose but do not faint <laughs> <laughs> she was sort of reacting to, I suppose to these um, overly moralistic sort of Stories. The novel is something that improved a person that you might see in Samuel Richardson or someone. Is 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 that a fair way to understand her? Mm. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, and I think that's that's curious, isn't it? Because she is often seen as being quite a didactic writer. Mm. Um, that um, there's there's a, a, a sort of thread of seriousness throughout her work. Um, she's dealing with serious topics and 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 there's all sorts of minute and and sort of carefully graded she's not obvious with her her, her moralism but um but but minute um moral evaluations going on throughout um and people often say you know her, her characters are so rounded they're so um complex um they're not cardboard cutouts illustrations of good and evil um, but none of that in the juvenilia. Um, here we have really cartoon characters for the most part that, that make of, often no sense at all. Um, and yet they're always very, um, they, they often use the language of, of morality. I mean, there's, there's a brilliant opening to um, Henry and Eliza, um, which was written at the age of 13. Um, Sir George and Lady Harcourt were superintending the labours of their haymakers, rewarding the industry of some by smiles of approbation and punishing the idleness of others by a cudgel. Oh. So this is just one instance of the, of the um, manic kind of uh, violence and extremity of a lot of these works elsewhere and uh, further along in Eliza and... Uh, and, and um, Henry and Eliza, you've got the, the her heroine Eliza, she's escaped from a dungeon where she's been um, imprisoned with her children, her infant children, um, by a mortal enemy. Um, she began to find herself rather hungry and had reason to think by their biting off two of her fingers that her children were much in the same situation. Um, it's <laughs> casual cannibalism there. <laughs> and it is true to say we, get, we, get, we don't get very many cudgels and, and sort of dismembered fingers do we later on in Jane Austen I wouldn't say none at all and you've got nobody <laughs> nobody dying on scene at all famously um so uh yes it's it, it just shows the restraint she's using um given that her imagination did when she was a, a teenager run wild and she allowed it to um and so that's part of the, that's a sort of different, that's led to a different um, uh, spin on the discontinuity idea. Um, perhaps most um, influentially put forward by Margaret Ann Doody in an earlier edition um, from OUP of the Juvenilia. Um, that um, 
what she's showing in, in some of these early works is a, is a kind of feminist rage. I mean, a rage against inequalities of various kinds, particularly um, the situation of um, impoverished young women. Um, and uh, you can imagine that um, with her own future rather uncertain and never very secure indeed during her lifetime financially, um, this was something that was very close to home. Um, so the idea that Judy had was that um, this, the expression of, of, of this anger had to be suppressed when you enter into print culture. It wasn't acceptable to the reading public, but you can let rip when it comes to the private writing. Um, and so um, here she found a much more sort of authentic Austinian voice, sometimes carried over. I mean, there are some... Um, spiky moments in the published writings and you can trace them back to um, really the dominant tone of the of the early writings and and also you could say the very late unfinished work Sanditon. It seems also as though the thing that people object to is high spirits that was high spirits in all mm. sorts of ways and some of it I mean it may well have been um, rage as well and some, and some of it is high spirits and kind of being silly which for a teenage writer is absolutely fine, isn't it? I mean, that's easy for me to say now, but I guess in the 18th century, it wasn't. Yes, well, I think, again, it's very interesting to look to Northanger Abbey, perhaps, as the finished work that's perhaps closest to the juvenilia in some ways. Um, it's mm. There you've got a very high-spirited heroine, um, who's not a heroine, we're told at the beginning, not at all your cookie-cutter heroine. Um, but from a certain age, she has to go into training as a heroine in order to take her place in society. Um, so there's a very interesting development being traced there. And you could consider it a kind of allegory of her own um, her own transitions as a writer, the transitions she had to make, the compromises she had to make in order to uh, get published. But there's no doubt that she develops other skills. Uh, with maturity. Um, I, I don't want to diss the, uh, <laughs> the the finished six. This idea, as you say, Margaret Ann Doody was one of the, the sort of proponents of it, that she had to, I mean, it sounds almost as if the idea is she used to kind of smooth off her rough edges to be palatable for a wider audience. In terms of the kind of way that books were published at the time and the, the reading public, I mean, does that, does that ring true for you? Um, Yes, yes, I think it does. I mean, particularly with women's writing. I mean, if you look back at the male tradition of Henry Fielding or Tobias Smollett, um, there's a lot more of the knockabout, you know, quite raw comedy. And actually, there is quite a lot in Frances Burney as well. If you look at Evelina um, or Cecilia, um, there's there's some broad comedy there too and violence violent moments um which is part of the picaresque i suppose yes and then it comes more into the drawing room in in a way but i think in the case of bernie she has to balance it with much more um emphatic didacticism and you might say that oh, jane austen found a, a a kind of more effective or a more subtle balance um when it came to her published works. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I think of Austen's published works as full of kind of human weakness and and occasional 
malice and malpractice and sadness too. I mean, they're they're not they're not really very gentle books in lots of ways, mm. are they? I, I think that's increasingly recognised. Yes, I mean, of course, that idea just does go back a little way as well as there's, there's, um, uh, the critic Harding uh, with his uh, idea of Jane Austen's works as regulated um, uh, hatred, I think, um, but uh, <laughs> of her society. Um, and, um, and I think that um, perhaps people are much more attentive um, today to the elements of uh, protest and critique in her in her writings and um, and there's no doubt I mean that that side of Austen never was left behind it's certainly there in the Sanditon working draft as well um, you've got um, absolutely you know manic characters who just take over the plot um, the the Parker siblings um, one of them, this crazed enthusiast, enthusiast for uh, entrepreneurship, creating this um, seaside resort out of nothing, on a, out of a fishing village, um, absolutely determined to succeed, but you can tell from the outset, bound to failure. And then uh, his siblings were trying to help him, um, but three of them are, are hypochondriacs themselves um, and, and come trying to lure others to, to the seaside village. So you've got absolutely none of the sort of standard, we haven't really talked about this yet, but the standard sort of, the, the romance plot that Jane Austen is associated with. Um, so you could say that this was her natural mode, that she, she never really left off. And that um, when left to herself, this is what she chose to do. This, this is how she occupied herself in some of her final months during her last illness. And Sanderton is a novel that, that she set aside, isn't it? Or, or was, it, was it cut short because she died? She set it aside when she became too ill, really, even to mm. sit up in bed with a, with a pen. Um, and uh, so, yes, I think it, it, it ended somewhere in the 13th chapter. Um, maybe it was, I think it was about five or six months before she died. I think it was in March. Um, uh, 1817 um, and um, I think there are some hints about how it might have ended but um, so slight that really nobody knows and so it's been a constant mm. challenge to, to descendants and, and now of course to um, Andrew Davies to come up with an answer as to how it might have gone. <laughs> well then again something something that we haven't haven't really talked about yet is is just this the whole world of Jane Austen that exists beyond the books and and in on the TV screens over and over and over again and of course you know in things that have nothing to do with Jane Austen you know directly I mean I, I guess you could say that that Bridgerton and and, and um you know TV programs like that come out of the world of Jane Austen the world that we began to sort of appreciate um and do you ever see anything like that ending? It doesn't show any signs of slowing down, does it? It's true. Yes, it's it's quite remarkable. The adaptations keep on coming. I I think um, I like quite a lot of uh, scholars of women's writing in the long eighteenth century. Wish that uh, that 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 filmmakers and uh, 
TV adapters who would look beyond Jane Austen sometimes. There's a, a host of wonderful writers like Mariah Edgeworth and, and Frances Burney, who I've mentioned, um, who deserve a bit of a look in. Um, there's some great stories there. Um, but yes, um, it certainly does seem to be uh, self-driving. I mean, it's just... It, I suppose new generations rediscover Jane Austen. There has to be adaptations for, for each new generation. And, um, and of course, as you say, there's a, a now a kind of um, Austen mythography and a kind of uh, Austen industry um, beyond the works themselves. So you get um, uh, life skills being extracted from them, guides to dating, um, there's really there doesn't seem to be an end to it um, the Austen name is magic <laughs> is it maybe it's what the modern I understand is called in the modern world the Austen verse that's probably what you call it isn't it the Austen verse yes Austin-verse. and I mean there's every reason for people to keep on reading Jane Austen um, I, I mentioned um, her being a soulmate and a solace um, many fans of course read the novels again and again almost like therapy yes. um, they really are the sort of I don't know there's something about them the sort of balanced cadence of the sentences that seem to promote well-being I think there's even been a scientific study demonstrating that reading Austen is good for you um, scientifically well I feel I feel sort of guilty as charged on on one of those things on you know the idea of going back to them and the soulmate and the solace and I think it's it's actually something to do with the fact that you do feel that she forgives frailty and as much she is didactic but she has a sort of understanding of human frailty but I must say um and I now I now feel a bit guilty that I haven't given Mariah Edgeworthy or Fanny Burney enough of a chance and I think I think I should probably try to cast my net a little bit wider I'm sure you'll enjoy them try and step beyond the Austen verse maybe yes exactly exactly um, Emma, how how will these two books that, that you'd reviewed, how do you think they will, do you think they will um, deepen and help our understanding of Austin? Oh, certainly, yes. Um, I mean, I've, I think I've mentioned in the review that Catherine Sutherland has been um, extra, extremely important in making the texts of the of the manuscript writings available online um they're freely available there so you can actually study um them in <laughs> in detail and uh um and, and there are transcripts there now um she's brought some of the wealth of knowledge that she's built up um through um preparing those texts and also through um this uh monograph that she published previously Jane Austen's textual lives um, to a new edition of the um, later manuscript writings um, and indeed uh, Freya Johnston and, uh, and, and Catherine Sutherland previously published together um, the teenage writings as they call them um, as a world's classics paperback um, so there's no excuse now. They're readily available, the, uh, the early texts, both online and uh, in paperback in this, this lovely edition. Um, and uh, the Freya Johnston work, as I say, yes, I think, um, I think it's interesting as a, as a contribution to the idea that um, there isn't a sharp divide um, between uh, unpublished and published Austen. 
um, that there are all sorts of interesting perspectives that can be explored. And also, I suppose, um, questioning within the texts themselves of um, what it is to be uh, early or late. Um, sometimes I think she suggests that there's a sort of maturity in some of the early writings um, that uh, precedes um, the later ones and and so in some ways exceeds them um, and she looks at a number of other writers from the period who um, either thought chronologically about the development of their literary styles or else um, challenged this idea uh, and she looks also at uh, different versions I, I really like there was a nice section where she challenges Brian Southam's ideas that um the early writings are simple transcripts. She brings a laser focus to um, crossings out and substitutions in what's just seemed like fair hand copies. Um, there's so much that can be deduced from even tiny details like this. And again, in the Sutherland edition, you can look at all the stages that a work like the Watsons and Sanditon went through. Um, and wonder about why she recrafted some sentences again and again, while others really did seem to uh, flow uncorrected from her pen. I have to say, these aren't old books that I've read with the same attention as I have the, the, the sort of main canonical works. But, but honestly, um, Emma, you've made me determined to, to, to remedy that situation. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us about about Jane Austen before she was Jane Austen today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Still to come on the show, we go from Northanger Abbey to the north of England. And I think because I'm a newbie here, they're going to let me get away with that segue. And we find two memoirs of growing up in Sheffield and Rochdale. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey Festival is back in person, 26th of May to the 5th of June, and the programme is out now at heyfestival.org forward slash Wales. It's set to be a return to remember with more than 500 speakers and performers due to take part. As well as launching the best new books, this year's event will feature a vibrant schedule of music and comedy, debates and performances for all ages. Guests will include, I'm going to take a deep breath here, there's a lot of guests and this is not all of them, uh, an all-star Letters live cast led by Benedict Cumberbatch, alongside speakers such as Stephen Fry, Nicola Sturgeon, Damon Galgut, Bernadine Evaristo, Cressida Cowell, Elif Shafak, Devry Shridhar, Gillian Clark, Lemon Sissy. Kate Rusby, Rose Tremaine, Minnie Driver, Monica Ali, Damian Lewis, Jimmy Page, Corinne Bailey-Ray, David Harewood, David Olashoga, Ian Ranking, Inua Elams, Jacqueline Wilson, Jarvis Cocker, PJ Harvey, and many more. And I think, Alex, you're going to be there, aren't you? Who are you going to talk to? Well, I am going to be there. I'm very excited because I am going to, all being well, interview Minnie Driver, star of many of my favourite films, Yep, but also, if you're probably going back a little bit to earlier in her career, remember that she was in the, the film adaptation of, of uh, Maid Benchy's Circle of Friends. And yes. Circle of Friends, which is set in a, in a tiny Irish village, that village is in fact not a few miles from where I'm sitting right now. It's very near where I live. And there is, of course, a cafe called Circle of Friends. So I'm going to see how much she remembers about, about the locale. Uh, and she's, we're going to be talking about her memoir and her entire career, so I'm very excited about that. Brilliant. You can't get her to your village and get a picture of you and Minnie Driver in the Circle of Friends Cafe. Well, well, Lucy, here's the thing. <laughs> I do pride myself on, on, you know, creating a good rapport with people who I'm interviewing, <laughs> so I hope that when we're on stage, I may elicit such a promise from her to return to, to a scene of her kind of youthful brilliant performance and indeed come to the come to the circle of friends cafe for what we in Ireland call the to- a toasted special which is a, a delicious toasted sandwich brilliant well that will be no doubt one of the highlights of hay and you can discover the program and the tickets at hayfestival.org forward slash wales the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now you may remember we talked about the idea of the North last week, the Arctic North really. Um, So this week we're reducing the scale a bit and talking about the North of England as we have a review of two memoirs of growing up there in Sheffield and Rochdale to be precise. Catherine Taylor, who is the author of a forthcoming memoir of Sheffield herself, has written us a lovely piece and we're delighted that she's here to talk about it today. Catherine, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Lucy. Um, 
So the first book you talk about is My Own Worst Enemy, Scenes from a Childhood by Robert Edrick, who I think is better known as a novelist, isn't he? Can you can you set the scene for us? Where and when is it? Sure. Um, Robert Edrick, it's actually a pseudonym, but I don't think that's necessarily important in this instance. Um, Robert Edrick grew up in Sheffield, post-war Sheffield, so really we're talking about the 1950s and 60s. He left Sheffield in 1974 to go to university in Hull. And he's talking about his very working-class childhood. Um, his first six years were spent outside Sheffield in a village near Ecclesfield. But he talks about the encroachment of the city on, on the countryside and how more and more those villagers are drawn into massive estates. Um, he grows up in an area of Sheffield called Firth Park, uh, in a street, a two up, two down, um, with an outside toilet, uh, with a very domineering father and a, quite a subservient mother and a huge extended family, which he he talks about in various brief chapters. Uh, it's a very compressed book. It's very claustrophobic. You very much get that sense of a house, a family, and a life which is potentially has all these fascinating elements in it but actually is quite limited, even when he goes to grammar school and he becomes, I suppose, quite alienated education-wise from his family, but also the fact that he's past the 11 plus, he's gone out of that orbit, but he's still beholden to this extraordinary bully of a father who is described almost magisterially in the book, his vanities, his toupee, uh, which is a kind of touchstone throughout the book. Um, his excessive gold jewellery, his cars, which are always old models, never really work properly, and and the way that he he blights, I suppose, the life of of um, this particular son. Yeah, there's a there's a brilliant detail that you talk about about his father. I mean, it's full of characters, you say, but but it is his father who stands out, isn't it? The thing about him when the sun when it's sunny. And he's got his shirt open and a, and a big necklace. Is that right? And, and 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 the hairs on his chest get stuck in the necklace and he spends his whole time pulling them out. He's, he's very vain. And he has this, it's almost kind of, I wouldn't call it homoerotic, this memorising. But there is this sense of fascination that um, that you feel that Edric has with this figure. So he's, 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 he's got all those accoutrements of, you know what we think of as the kind of seventies, <laughs> the big, the big jewelry, the big chain, yeah, the, the big chains and the cufflinks and the kind of flash suits, and that's his kind of outward exterior, I suppose. He's a different person at home, of course, once he takes his toupee off, which was ruinously expensive for the family, who are always in debt, and he buys this um, item on hire purchase, and when he's not wearing it, it it kind of luxuriates like a sort of succubus. <laughs> had a wig stand in the corner of one of the rooms. Blimey. There's something so kind of, I don't know, sort of pathetic, I suppose, about the idea of a, a toupee on the higher purchase. Yes. Because if you defaulted on the payments, well, I mean, surely nobody would want it back. Well, there is a quite a, I hesitate to say poignant. It, it, again, he's got a real sense of drama, obviously. He's, he's a terrific plotter as a novelist. And he's got a great imagination, but what really, and his recall, of course, is fantastic in this. He talks about going to the castle market in Sheffield and 
because his father has this certificate of authentication for this toupee. And he sends his son because he needs to get his toupee mended. He sends his son in to pretend that it's his uncle who needs his toupee mended. And he's clearly mm. being kind of sold a kind of Swiss, you know. But because of his vanity, he's fallen for all of this. And this is a kind of extraordinary chapter that unfolds where the, the kind of son colludes in the father's perhaps his humiliation, he becomes himself humiliated. I never heard of having to authenticate your toupee, but you know, maybe that was the old days. <laughs> it is interesting just, just thinking about, you, you know, he is, you're right, he's better known as a novelist. I think I've recently been reading Howard Jacobson's memoir, and of course, you know, a novelist. And you just, you just and also a, a memoir of, of a lot of it, of the norm. Um, and you just wonder, do you have to be a novelist to capture those moments, those particularly visual moments that bring in vanity and sadness and comedy and tragedy all at the same time? I shouldn't say that really, Catherine, because I'm not a you're right. And then why you're not a novelist? <laughs> and then there are many, many great I've really put my foot in it now. So I? the answer to that, Alex, is no. No, you don't have to be no, a novelist. That's a, that's a very closed question. No is the answer. But I suppose what I'm saying, you know, there is a really interesting overlap, isn't there, often? He does very much home in on beautiful, and some of the chapters are only a few pages long, but you really get this sense. So there's one chapter where he, um, Edric, at the age of about 12 or 13, takes up angling. He, he seems to apply himself to a hobby like this just as much as he applies himself to the paper route that he has to do or working at fine fair supermarket later or studying. Uh, he's quite single-minded about this, but also I think it's a way of um, asserting his own identity in, uh, mm -hmm. against the father. And he talks about the empty greenness of Lincolnshire, and it just perfectly describes, to me, Lincolnshire. Uh, just in, and, and that is those those kind of um, useful descriptive elements do do run through. Uh, I suppose he has fashioned it thematically as well because it stops very abruptly. It stops when he goes to university, and so you don't get that retrospective feel that even though he is writing from a perspective clearly of middle age. You don't get that retrospective feel that he's he's slightly. I don't. It's very immediate. Is what I'm trying to say. Mm. You don't feel that it's a kind of linear representation necessarily. I and mean, when he talks about power cuts, as he's doing his eight levels, the power cuts and, and the three day week, but that really doesn't intrude very much on this sense of here is one street, which. He doesn't mention this in the book that I found out the street he grew up on was featured in the Full Monty, which, lo and behold, is returning to our screen. Yes, yeah. As um, mm. we see the plucky steelworkers, uh, ex-steelworkers, deal with um, the North Sheffield uh, 25 years later. So it's, it's actually quite interesting how everything goes around, comes around. Mm. I was going to talk about, you, you mentioned, you, you say the paradox of this industrial part rural city surrounded by the hills and gritstone edges of the peak district it is a paradox isn't it Sheffield because a lot of the talk about it was all about you know about about um, industry and steel and pits and all of that but it's surrounded by great great beauty and there's a very I would I mean you know better than me but now I would say there's a very strong awareness of the beauty and the importance of bringing the nature back in that's right and it, it, uh, lots of Sheffielders often say that Sheffield is the only city in England to be uh, 
partway into a national park. Uh, when I moved, when I moved my family to Sheffield, I was very small, I was three, and so it was um, around the sort of the time that Edric was leaving. But we had a coal fire uh, in our first house, and we had these giant crags at the end of the street. Uh, mm. Looked out over the Rivlin Valley, so there was never there was always that sense that it's a very urban place, and uh, like Edric, a lot of the architecture, a lot of the uh, is, is sort of still covered in soot. Then in, in the seventies, there was a blackened church in Bramall Lane in Sheffield, which wasn't cleaned to the nineties. And actually, I preferred the blackened church because that seemed quite symbolic of the city's industrial past. But then you do have this, this, these grit stones and these edges, and this Sheffield sort of sitting in 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 the middle of it, really. And and you can see that from any aspect of the city. So it is quite it is quite extraordinary. If you, I'm sounding like a tourist guide, but um, <laughs> <laughs> you, no, I'm a big fan of Sheffield. It's especially the centre. It's gorgeous. I think now I used to go there yeah. in my youth. When it was it was fun, but it was it was less gorgeous. But now you come out of the train station, it's just it's fantastic. Yeah, I would I would say that. I also say that there's Sheffield hasn't benefited from the generation that a lot of cities, northern cities like perhaps Manchester have or Liverpool. Um, so it it has been quite forgotten. I mean, there's, the Heritage Lottery Fund has done amazing things to bring back some of that um, that sort of nineteenth century. The amazing botanical gardens and the general cemetery um, and and things like that. But I think just mm. the city, it's suffered always from uh, planning issues and development issues. For example, there's conservation areas, but opposite them you have yet more new buildings that um, going up. So it is again that that's another paradox, if you like. Mm. And so whereas Edric's book is very, you say it's very, very specific, almost limited it, 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 about time and place. The second um, book you talk about, which is No One Round Here Reads Tolstoy, Memoirs of a Working Class Reader by Mark Hodkinson. Um, that's a bit less specific and focused. Is that right? Yes. So Mark Hodkinson is a really interesting um, guy. He, he grew up in Rochdale in Lancashire. Uh, about a decade after Edric, and a, possibly a similar kind of household that with less of the posturing and violence, I think that Edric, um, much less of that, that Edric had to endure. And, you know, it's a great title. It really sort of, st- st- he's really like laying his words on the table. And, yes. Uh, yeah, you yeah. Know, no one around here reads Tolstoy, so why 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 are you why are you reading books? And and you know it's a house filled with television, and there was one book, um, which was kept on top of the uh, wardrobe along with his cycling proficiency certificate. So that was the status of books in the house. And he is this sort of self-confessed autodidact and collector, so he would collect anything, beer mats, uh, football cards, and he started to read and collect books and, and he was an avid reader he didn't actually go to um again he went he went to secondary modern he and he he sort of details these these um school days with kind of humor and and pathos as well um and then he he's a really determined character you really um appreciate that from the book he's very expansive he's very enthusiastic he's perhaps too expansive and enthusiastic uh, and he mm. he went on to become a journalist um and he 
became he he founded a publishing company and he's he's done you know various things in, in sport has has written quite a few books um, sporting books as well. Uh, so this is a very personal um, memoir, but it really is about that not holding back and also I think that you do get I got very much caught up in that irrepressibility even as I sort of I thought oh god why are you talking about that again and the the quite sort of painfully self-conscious moments um and in the writing too there was always another aspect that drew me back into it and he has this figure of this grandfather um interspersed this sort of memory of his grandfather interspersed throughout the book this man who suffered from mental illness, but who he looked up to and was very close to. Um, and that's this kind of ghostly figure in the, in the tapestry of the book, as well as his later discussions on meeting some of these heroes of Northern writing, such as um, Alan Sillitoe and Hunter Davies, the Beatles biographer, and, and Barry mm -hmm. Hines, uh, who wrote A Kestrel for a Knave, um, which Hogginson writes about very well. Um, and uh, that, again, that's, if you're writing about the North, you, <laughs> no matter how characterised it is, you can't really get away from, from that book and, and the film that came out of it. Yes, well, we, I, I do want to talk about that. Um, but before, I did want to talk about the, just mention the caricature thing, because um, that's not, I mean, that's not Northern, is it? But, I mean, it's, it's sort of partly about alienation about being the only bookish one in a family not interested in books but that doesn't mean you know I'm sure that as many people in the north reading Tolstoy as there were anywhere else that's not a particularly northern thing that's just where he happened to be or or, or do you get a sense that he's saying it is um, he's building he's describing that world which is quite recognizable if you are, are you know from that part of the world and um but I think I I think he's perhaps slightly sending it up. Uh, I don't want to do him a disservice by saying that, but he's perhaps presenting an archetype and then slightly demolishing it. Um, yeah, I think he's very aware of the characterising uh, of the North, and I think that as well. I think the slight issue I have with both these books is this, or not necessarily these books, but the the whole kind of when you have a discussion or you have a conversation about the North, it's very homogenised. I'm sure you appreciate that, Lucy. You, you know, people don't mm, yeah, necessarily yeah. distinguish between different towns and cities or counties. And of course, every place is, Sheffield, for example, is different from Manchester and Leeds as it is from Newcastle and Birmingham. Yeah, I mean, totally, completely different. And it's just, yeah, I, you know, like what's happening in Liverpool has got nothing necessarily to do with what's going on in Sheffield, as you say. Or... It's a catch-all phrase, but I think that, um, and of course he doesn't say a northern working class reader, the subtitle is a working class reader. So I think that, I, I think that what he's talking about, particularly as the book goes on, is that, and I found this when I left Sheffield and went to university at the end of the 80s, away, far away from the city, that there's a world that is quite forgotten. Uh, so he talks about the 1980s and the social unrest. Um, he mentions the minor strike. It's real kind of the boys from the Black Stuff era. You know, the whole Alan Bleasdale television series with um, uh, Giza Job. And when I went to, yeah. I, when I went to university, uh, there were people who grew up in the home counties who didn't know what a recession was and had never heard of anything 
didn't really understand recent history to them the 80s was all about opportunity and mm. it wasn't like that uh for mark hogginson it wasn't yeah. like thousands of people it was a real north-south divide and perhaps it's never really gone away is there also i wonder a sort of male female design you know because as you say it's not called you know memoirs of a, a northern working class reader and it's not called memoirs of a male working class reader either but thinking about you know the other books he's written about music about football there are areas that have been kind of the preserve of, of men writing about the men supporting them men get you know the kind of sort of the fandom and the interest and you mentioned that he was a collector of things too do you think there's there's a kind of aspect of sort of gender you know, performance of gender that's going on here that that it was almost worse that he was a reader because he was a, a young boy oh definitely I think for him and there's a interesting comic almost comic but quite sad uh, exchange between him, him and his father at one point when he's a teenager um, and his father kind of sits him down and it's basically is there anything you want to tell us I are you gay because you're reading so much do you have a problem with girls <laughs> Uh, it was that sort of incomprehension uh, mm. that he's quite candid about and uh, I think that was probably quite difficult for him growing up I, I mentioned in the review about him needing glasses because he had poor eyesight but his mother thinks he's showing off uh, he wants to look that he wants to look intellectual rather than the fact that he actually needs glasses to see so mm. I think there is that sense of Going back to the Edric as well, the father boasts about his son being a grammar school boy, but he is he he basically keeps telling him, You think you think the world owes you a living, you know, your your brain's coming from me. I could have done that, but he shows no interest mm. in helping to elevate his son. Uh he he makes him, you know, work to pay for his uniform, but he capsizes everything he everything that Edric tries to do for himself and is always reflected back on himself. So I think with Hawkinson, it's more kind of ruefulness about those misunderstandings that, that occur between parents and children who are growing away from each other. Mm. Um, and you say that Hodkinson, he, he writes very well about uh, a kestrel for a knave and, and Kez. This is a sort of wider sense of alienation, isn't it? And that the characters in that, the, and the boy and his, it's his boying older brother, isn't it? And the companionship that he finds with the bird, that they, they might... He thinks that that might kind of sum up his generation that they've been left behind, neglected locally and nationally, and 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 I I get the feeling from the the end of your piece that you think it, it's still very much in that position. Well, I think looking more generally um, and perhaps less specifically, well, no, specifically about about the north. Again, I'm using that. <laughs> it's um, difficult though. It's difficult it is, not to. It is, but I think. I think we're, we're looking, you know, it's a, a kind of era where that we're living through at the moment without being especially political about it, but we, there are people who are struggling massively uh, and have been over the last couple of years and, and, and longer. And with the, um, the access to education being very much bound up with market forces and with being able to afford it, then I think that there is, getting back to um, an era of less opportunity. I don't particularly think that grammar schools and the whole set 11 plus 
system was a great idea. I mean, in my own family, one brother passed it and one brother didn't, you know, and you have your kind of determination uh, that your future mm. determined by it. Uh, my father went to grammar school, but he grew up in a, he grew up in a council house. So, um, but I think with the whole thing about the Billy Casper, who was the main character in Castro Nave, and um, what's happening now is, yes, I think that we can kind of wring our hands about this um, situation. We can wring our hands about the depiction, but actually it's, it's, it's not as uncommon. Uh, and I think it's not, I'm not really not sure the direction that we're going to go in, in terms of um, how people are going to be, I'm not even going to use uh, that terrible term leveling up, how people are going to be kind of protected yeah. uh, and not left behind. And, and I think Hodkinson does this very well. He, he's not sentimental about it, but it really did strike me that this young man he went to school with, who was always an outsider and, and not even in a, in a kind of iconoclastic way. He was just the kid that everybody laughed at and there, were, there, were, there was more than one and he, he ended up and taking his own life. So um, there are many more things in the book, but it's, it's, it's one aspect that really struck me. Catherine, just sort of kind of more broadly, I suppose, um, this idea of the kind of literature and the memoir of place. I mean, this is an enormous body of material that you yourself are now are now joining. Uh, and I wondered the extent to which you know, we're talk, talking about uh, the present day and the immediacy of some of the problems uh, that we're being presented with now and the, and the, the future uh, of those problems how everything's going to pan out, but how do you think that's going to kind of affect memoir writing? That's a very big question, isn't it? Yes, because where do you, in a way, where do you stop with memoir writing? I think that's the problem that Hopkinson, yeah. he's kind of on a roll. And I think the problem with his memoir is he's almost trying to write a state of the nation book within his own personal reminiscences. Uh, and I think he's got all this material and he's, he wants to share it. Do you think the title has that sort of slight implication of the, you know, all unhappy families unhappier in, in their own way sort, sort of thing? You know, memoir has to be incredibly specific, doesn't it, to, to, to really grab a reader. Mm. Yes, you want to have the kind of universal things that even someone like me, a southerner, can can understand. And I, you'll notice I've been keeping terribly quiet in this conversation. Um, <laughs> less unhouted <laughs> as a really a softy southerner but um you know it does have to be specific you know you think of for you know a great example of the genre um why be happy when you can be normal with Jeanette Winters I mean that had so many specifics to do with her mother to do with um her status as an, as an adopted child her mother as a religious fanatic essentially there's always got to be something that just makes it utterly personal to to, to the writer isn't that absolutely and I think um with Edric it's it's the father with Hawkinson it's it's really the reading I mean it, it's about how he hmm. he's, he's amassed you know thousands and thousands of books and it actually start the book actually starts with um an epilogue where he's moving house but he just doesn't know what to get rid of and I think that's perhaps 
um, stands for <laughs> the, the book in itself. You know, he's got so much, he's he's got so much there. He's got so so many. He's a so possession of so much that that he can't actually. He doesn't can't quite edit it really. Um, You're saying you would have recommended a more sort of you know knowing what to get rid of sort of yeah. approach to shifting books, as it were. Yes, although I suffer from that myself, but. Uh, <laughs> Yes, don't, don't we all don't we all i know it's a it's a problem what did what did you say earlier alex the teetering stack i it's did the teetering actually, stack problem put me in mind of someone and I, i'm going to do a, a million times the kind of don't try this at home but i knew someone once who amassed so many books that they gave up cooking so they could put them in their oven which just oh. me sounds like health and safety nightmare <laughs> red flag because you'd be so frightened you'd forget and go to make some toast or something and then there'd be a conflagration but it did I did think on the other hand it spoke of a great commitment to to books rather than food yeah yes just that's eat so. sandwiches and keep your books in the baby belly that's <laughs> <laughs> okay please please nobody do that nobody do that, that we cannot ex- we cannot on our on our librarians wages we cannot afford the lawsuit no absolutely not <laughs> Catherine I'm sure you don't keep your books in the oven but you keep them somewhere sensible and we're going to look forward to yours which is published next year is that right that's right it's coming out um next spring and it's called the stirrings which is very Sheffield specific um but also quite ambiguous brilliant but well, we'll look forward to it and um many thanks for joining us today thanks Lucy thanks Alex is all we have time for this week our thanks go to emma cleary and Catherine taylor and thank you to you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by sophia franklin we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.